Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. We welcome back Dwight L. Wilson today for Spirit in Action. We had him with us about two years ago discussing, among other things, his book series, Essie Was My Mother, a fictional account of the real situations of his enslaved ancestors. Dwight has been very active in the interim, serving on a police oversight commission in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and much more including two books he's written that we're going to discuss. The first is called Modern Psalms of Solace and Resistance, wherein Dwight shares deep, divine-directed psalms from a humble, fully engaged 21st century heart. The second book is Whispering to Babies, a womb-to-tomb memoir, centered around Dwight's regular Monday time volunteering in a cardiac care center for babies, exchanging love with infants in great distress and in need of human touch. Dwight sees the whole world with compassionate eyes and with a heart dedicated to correcting and healing the wide world. There is a full uncut version of this program on northernspiritradio.org and some bonus excerpts we have had to cut out of the broadcast version. Dwight L. Wilson joins us via Zoom from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Dwight, it's absolutely wonderful to have you back here today for Spirit in Action. I finished reading both the books a couple weeks ago, actually, and uh, you were on vacation. I think one of the things you were doing was grandparenting. Didn't you have a spate of grandparenting finally in the last month? We went to Lawrence, Kansas to see our two granddaughters out there, and our granddaughter from Ithaca came in last week. And a few weeks before we went to Lawrence, we went to San Diego to see our grandsons out there. So yes, this summer has been a blessing because I hadn't seen either one of the uh, older four since January of 2020. The baby, who was 14 months old, was with us last week. We had been out there three times and spent a couple weeks each time because my wife, now I'm retired officially, and my wife is working distance for the University of Michigan's medical school. And so we could be in Timbuktu, and she could still do her work. I noticed in the Psalms of Solace and Resistance, I know there must have been a handful of references to your freckles, <laughs> which most people don't associate with black men, right? You know, freckles yeah. are just not a big thing. Do you think you got them from Ramsey's? No, please. <laughs> I always had assumed that my freckles came because of some rapist, because no one ever talked about anybody being in an interracial marriage. No one did. So I was general secretary of FDC from late 70s, early 80s. And I decided when both of my grandmothers had heart attacks in 1980, somewhere around there, that I needed to do an interview with them and find out as much as I could about the family history. My father's mother, I knew, had come from at least four generations Three generations that had been born in Lebanon, Ohio, which is in Warren County, a hotbed of underground railroad stations there, probably over 20. And I figured the Quakers may have helped us up from slavery. And my grandmother pointed me to the family historian, she who was at that time. She was 90. This is 1980. Before I went to see her, I did some research in the local museum, in the archives, and I discovered three different ways that there was a Quaker named Charles Ferguson, who had married my fourth grade grandmother. 
And I went to see my good auntie. My she really was my cousin. She's my grandmother's first cousin, but you know she felt like an aunt. So I went to see her, and I said, uh, "Cousin Clarabelle, I have proven three separate ways that my fourth great grandmother Sarah was married to Charles Ferguson, a, a Quaker. There are Quakers in the families." She said, "Why, well, show?" And I said, "Well, you never told me." And I said, "You know, I'm general secretary of Friends General Conference." And he said, "Well, I didn't tell you nothing about the Baptist or the Methodist, did I?" It's <laughs> supposed to be better. And so then she told me the history of how this had all come about. And so I may very well be totally wrong about this. I said to myself, when I found out that there was a Scotch-Irish Quaker, that that is where the freckles came from. And I don't know if that's true, because my grandmother on the other side is lighter than the palm of my hand. Almost everybody on her side was that light. I know that there were no marriages there. So it could come from somebody that raped a woman. I don't know. But they're here and nothing I can do about them. And I hated and despised them until I was about 60, maybe. I noticed that in the Psalms that you wrote, they were not Psalms of love to freckles. No, please. (laughs) For sure. But you've reconciled with them since you were 60 or so, okay? Well, Diane reconciled them for me. When I was in my 50s, she did. So we are in the bedroom, relaxing, and she starts putting her fingers all over my face. And I said, what are you doing? And she said, I'm counting the stars. Change the world. Change the world. Well, and I feel like your Psalms help do that to some degree as well. There's many words that we've heard, and there's a number of Psalms from Hebrew writings that some of us like a lot and many people don't like. What's your history with the Psalms, pro and con? I look at the Psalms and I hear people, like one of my major spiritual mentors was Elizabeth Watson, who I'm sure you knew. Elizabeth was enamored with the Psalms. I've never been enamored with all of the Psalms because so many of them are vindictive and whiny. Now, there are some that are glorious. I don't like seeking revenge because it can't happen. Revenge is totally impossible. All it does is it starts cycles of of more violence. And you can't bring anything back that's been lost. I grew up in a family where whining was totally unacceptable. You did not go there. So how am I going to like something when somebody is just constantly carping about this, that, or the other? So there are some that are lustrous, and there are others that do not reflect the God that I worship, the deity that I worship. Could you grab one or maybe two psalms that you do relate to or that you'd like to hold up as an example of what you are or are not emulating as you write modern psalms of solace and resistance? I know that 19 and 23 are both glorious psalms. I've read the Bible cover to cover, I think it's now 10 or 11 times from Genesis to Revelation. But most, most sections I've read, you have to ask the Holy One how many times. Psalms, I would guess, The book of Psalms, I don't know, 40, 50. I'm trying to find one that I read recently that was really, really hard for me. 31 is very whiny. I know that. 28, which echoes Jesus the way that a friend of mine, he was my best friend when I was in theology school. Both of us were going to be Old Testament professors. He did become one. My mother began dying, and it was more important. I rejected a full fellowship from Chicago Theological Seminary for my doctorate because I wanted to help her die. No regrets. I was there with her every other weekend helping her. But 28 is a verse that I disagree with Jesus about. I think this is where what he was quoting. The way my friend translated, 
Don't be deaf when I call you, Lord. Your silence is deadly to me. David has never been deaf to my calls. When Jesus is reported to have said, and I believe he said it, on the cross, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? That's an embarrassing statement for somebody who considers themselves to be a Jesus follower, which is what I call myself instead of a Christian, because of how some people have corrupted what Christianity means. My God, my God, why has thou forsaken? I've never felt forsaken. I have had serious downs where marriages fell apart, where my mother died. She's only 44. I did the funerals for my mother, my father, the three grandparents that I respect, eight, uh, seven uncles, and three or four cousins who died before me. Some of them, I was with them all the way through, but I never felt forsaken. When people say that, that having a crisis of faith is expected, well, I miss the expectations. It may be normal, but it was never an expectation. I don't believe in blaming the Holy One for the bad things that happen in life. The way I look at life is we are sent angels all the time to help us through this, that, or the other. And most of the time, or often, we will reject them. And we'll say, well, how come God isn't answering my prayer? Well, maybe the person who could have answered your prayer was somebody who was in a different political party. Maybe they were transgender, and you think that somebody who is transgender is evil. I mean, we get sent angels all the time. We just don't accept them. Could you tell us the name of your friend and the book, the translations he's got of the Psalms? Because I think our listeners might like to know that. Gary Chamberlain, a New Testament translation for prayer and worship. And it's the Psalms, Gary Chamberlain. I'm going to try and include a link with this Spirit in Action program with my interview with Dwight Wilson and the reference to Gary Chamberlain's book. So, folks, if you want to track that down, come via NorthernSpiritRadio.org. Is there another psalm that you'd like to hold up as either as what you like or don't like from the Bible that maybe would give us an idea going into modern psalms of solace and resistance? I'm sure there are some people who are not of the same mind as I am. I believe that Scripture is never closed. That's my point of view on it. God's writing those words in our hearts each day. But some people will want to say the book of Scripture is closed. It was voted on in the 300s because Constantine said so. And so, therefore, the Scripture is closed. I didn't get to vote. And see, I look at voting and I look, I look at voting a lot different than many whites do. Okay. I didn't get to vote then. And there are some that I would have voted out. Because I was standing to be an Old Testament theologian, I know a number of the books that never made it that I would have voted in. So, just because somebody said, that we're going to vote this in doesn't mean that it should have been there as far as I'm concerned. I use the Bible as a guide, but I use my experience as a deeper guide. And I'm not ashamed of that. I've had friends who have said to me, well, you're picking and choosing. Oh, yeah, man, I pick and choose. I pick and choose all the time. And so do you. You may not want to admit it, but but I do. When I read in the Bible about some deities saying you need to kill everybody in that town, including the babies, I want to hear that. That's not my guy. Sorry. Yeah, I just picked and I just chose. We're going to make reference also to the other book that I'll be talking to you about today, Dwight, Whispering to Babies, A Womb to Tomb Memoir, a way to talk about scope of your life without centering it on you. I think there's a part of you which is sensibly humble. I've got the button, by the way, that says I'm proud to be a humble Quaker. (laughs) 
The guy who was the superintendent of the Sunday school that I grew up in, he always referred to himself in third person as your humble servant. And so I remember your humble servant took two or three of the youth to a state convention. And we had to stay in the homes of people who lived in that town while your humble servant stayed in the highest class hotel room in the city. So, yeah, okay, man, I get it. <laughs> Name it. What denomination was that that you were dealing with? I grew up being forced to go to a Baptist church. And when did you connect with Quakers? In 69 in Maine in theology school. So Psalms is where I'm, I want to start off my focus. But let me just say that having read Modern Psalms of Solace and Resistance, and that's keeping in mind that I haven't read your previous book, Modern Psalms in Search of Peace and Justice. I think you channel the experience of Psalms with reality, with present day reality, beautifully. Thank you. Except there's one thing that I want to criticize you for, and it's not real criticism. You set such a high bar for being loving and forgiving. You mentioned that in a number of the passages of the Hebrew and Christian Bible, there's a lot of vindictiveness. You don't seem to have it. And I'm just questioning why you don't have more vindictiveness. It leaves me feeling I don't express my vindictiveness outwardly to people. But there are times when I have little visions that are not in measure with what I think divine light has shown me. So I'm just curious why you don't have more vindictiveness in your system. I don't see how you can heal while wanting to hurt. I don't. And I see my whole life about healing. I see my whole life, my whole calling being to be a bridge and not to be a wall. And does that mean that I accept everything that people do? Please. You know, I did. I still am doing police oversight work. And I see all of these people who have been killed. I have two relatives who have been killed, two cousins who have been killed by police. But I also have two uh, nephews who are policemen. And I have performed wedding ceremonies for policemen. And I have taught the kids and held the babies for policemen. How are we going to heal it? I just don't believe the division heals. It's like, how can I be, be deliberately trying to hurt and at the same time trying to heal you? It's absurd. That paradise doesn't work. So part of my question is really, where does that clarity come from? Was it in your Baptist no. Sunday school? <laughs> I don't think by any means that Quakers are lacking in vindictiveness. We certainly fall short way too often. So where did you get it? It was your mother that taught you this? It comes from two places. It comes from my reading of Jesus, that he was not vindictive, that he was the justice seeker, and he was willing to pay the price for it. His price was he got crucified. I may get killed, but I'm not, I, I can't believe that I'm going to get crucified. But also from my mother. And uh, I'll tell you a story. I may have told you this before, but I'm assuming that there are listeners that were not there when we were holding this conversation. I knew my mother had lost a set of twins. I knew they were two years younger than me. I did not know the circumstances. In 2000, exactly 25 years after my mother had died, I was interviewing her sister. And I asked her sister to tell me what was segregated in our hometown when I was growing up. And while she's giving me this list, I'm writing all these things down. It's like, wow. Some of them were right in my face and I didn't see them. And then she said, the reason your mother lost the twins was because the white ambulance wouldn't take her to the hospital. Mom never told us that. Mom talked about them all the time, but she didn't give us the circumstances behind why she lost them. So I'm trying to parse what was her energy that she didn't tell us? I think it was that she did not want us to hate all white people. 
that's just the, that's just who she was. I mean, she, but at the same time, don't get me wrong. She, she said, don't trust white folk, but she never said why. She just didn't have a hatred. But if you're a black person growing up as she did, and as I do, it's easy to have that hatred. But that wasn't what she taught. And because she didn't teach it, I did not internalize it. I've never been somebody who was snowed by words. Words are totally irrelevant to me. I want to see your actions, baby. If you can't walk it, shut up. And uh, I have so many friends and relatives who will listen to somebody's conversation and they'll think that's their practice. As a Quaker, we talk about faith and practice. Yeah, I've got faith and I want to see the practice. And if I had been the one who come up with the phrase, I would have said practice and faith. You released Modern Songs of Solace and Resistance. It was still in 2020. The way that you have it formatted is for each day of the year, there's a psalm you've written, that you've channeled. And many of them refer to what's happening during the pandemic. So the pandemic would have started in March of 2020 for us. And yet you've got a year there. So I was trying to figure out how these days relate to the actual days that you were dealing with. They have no relationship whatsoever. Okay, okay. That right, let, me tell you, let me tell you what happened. My first songs book was written entirely during the administration of Obama. But it didn't have anything to do with Obama because I, I don't see a president as being a guy. The best that I can see a president as being is as an um, analogy, the announcer of a football game. The president is not the game itself. All of the second book, uh, Modern Psalms of Silence and Resistance, was written during the previous administration. But it wasn't written in response to that administration. It was written in response to what was going on in my own life. So from 2017 to 2019, I was writing songs. Like I write an average of probably one and a half a day, probably over the last five years. But in the last two months, I probably averaged two or three a day. So I sent all of these out. In lot. I asked uh, my friends who would be willing to read a lot of 25 and just tell me what you like. You don't have to say anything else. No critique. Just tell me what you like and what you don't like. And as they came back, I put them in order. And then my wife says to me, why don't you put them in order of days? Because it was like 440 or something. I don't know. And she said, why don't you just take 365 of them and put them in order of days? And she read it after I had done that. And she told me, you need to change this one because you really wrote it in the summer and it's talking about winter. And, and so anyway, we put it in, in what may appear to some people to have been daily. I, I can't write like that. I write my Psalms to the Holy One. Some of them I will show to other people. Many of them I will not ever show to other people. The Holy One fact checks everything I say. I know that. Anyway, the order is totally false. But what I write is not for when I write psalms, I don't write psalms to a human audience. I used to be a haiku master. Often I would write my haiku for to impress somebody, even though I always wrote my haiku in the flow of my life. They were not from my mind either. But I also have written Western poetry, far less than either one of the disciplines I use now. And almost always that was to impress. 
Folks, we have Dwight L. Wilson here today with us for Spirit in Action. We're especially talking about his book, Modern Psalms of Solace and Resistance. And he also wrote another book released this past year, Whispering to Babies, A Womb to Tomb Memoir. I had him on Spirit in Action back in March of 2019. Keep in mind for perspective that that was a year before the identified beginning of the pandemic here in the United States. And at that point, we were talking about his series, As He Was My Mother, combining historical facts with historical fiction about his family, because he was descended from people who were enslaved. I highly recommend those books. Where are you in that series right now, Dwight? Right now, the seventh book is being edited. I expect it out by Christmas. That's of the novels. Of the collection of short stories, the third is with the publisher, is ready to go out. But the publisher is running wild, which is in L.A., and they have serious contacts with Hollywood. As a matter of fact, the person who found it works for Warner Brothers, and they're trying to shop it as a television series. And they don't want the third one to come out until March or April of next year, and they want it also, hopefully, to become a television series. I will believe that when I'm sitting on the sofa, Eating pipe. <laughs> until then, you know, it's, it's, I, I probably shouldn't even have mentioned it, but I did. Well, I'm working on the fourth one. And the fourth one, it's in about the eighth draft. And I'm probably going to let it go and then move on to the eighth novel. And I'm also going to be working on a book of essays. I'm going to ask you a little bit more about that. But first, I want to remind listeners, this is Spirit in Action. Our website's northernspiritradio.org. You'll find links to Dwight Wilson, dwightlwilson.com on northernspiritradio.org, and to all of my guests the past 16 years, both for Spirit in Action and for Song of the Soul. You'll find a place to add comments, and I would really love it. And Dwight, you can let your listeners know this if they would post comments on my website about this interview that we're having right now, just about your work and any other programs they happen to listen to. There's also a place to donate to Northern Spirit Radio. You can do that online or send us a check. All the ways are possible, and that's how we support this full-time work that I do. And I want to give thanks specifically to Andrew Jansen for his help in production assistance, which he does regularly. And so all those things you can do via NorthernSpiritRadio.org, but especially, and this I would do actually before you support Northern Spirit Radio, is support the community radio stations that carry this. We have some 42 stations nationwide that carry our programs in towns here and there, and I forget how many 20 states we're in right now. There's so many wonderful places where they carry local news, they carry special glimpse of truth and light that you do not get from mainstream media. Mainstream media does a lot of things well, and it also does a selection that is based more on money or on popularity than on importance. And so community radio stations have the option of featuring things that other stations do not include. So please support them with your wallet, with your hands in your city. Please make sure you support local community radio stations. And then if you can support Northern Spirit Radio. Dwight Wilson is here. We're talking about modern psalms of solace and resistance. I asked you about what you relate to in the Bible. How about you pick out and read to us a couple examples of modern psalms of solace and resistance so that we get a flavor of what you do, how you do, and why you do it? Even though I told you that I knew that the order was, by and large, accidental, you didn't tell me you were going to ask me this question. 
but I knew that whatever I put on my birthday would have some significance. So I'm turning to, <laughs> I'm turning to my birthday, April 28th. Acting as your child, I refuse to limit my love to my kin and favorite friends. I reach beyond myself into you yourself, freely paying the price for my existence in a world where I'm a guest as fragile as dust and as powerful as I dare to practice. Why specifically that one? What made that your birthday song? I think because it was short. And I think it because if somebody decided they were going to put it on a tombstone, I would not haunt them. <laughs> I think I read a psalm just this morning. And in that psalm, I think you mentioned, you didn't say it as a theological fact, but you said we were only given this one life or something, which I think was referring to the one life that we have before us versus many people are invested in pie in the sky by and by. Mm-hmm. Where's your investment? Here, now. You know, having grown up a Baptist, there's a lot of talk about heaven. There is also a lot of talk about hell. I found it fascinating that I have yet to be at a funeral where anybody said that so-and-so was going to hell. Everybody's supposed to be going to heaven if there is one. One of the things that drew me back into Quakerism, and remember, I did not know that it was a traditional part of our family that we'd gone back to the first generation of Quakers at that time, was that they didn't talk about heaven. You do good for goodness sake, period not because you're trying to win some award or reward. I would like to believe that there's a heaven, but I haven't met anybody who came back and talked to me about it. I know there's a hell because I have been there. I have been there. I have been there on earth. So how can I try to help other people not experience the dark places that I have lived through? I have a number of friends now who are are in great pain. Among those who, who I've spoken to recently, one of my former students who is going through a divorce. And I didn't know that that was happening in her life until she reached out and told me. Another who is dying. They're from different schools. He's got stage four cancer. A friend who she and her husband both got cancer got COVID. He died and she retreated. She used to contact me like two or three times a week. And I hadn't heard from her until Friday. It had been five months since I'd heard from her. And I wrote and I write her about every week and say, I'm still here. How can I help people not feel alone when they are suffering? That's what I want to do. And I want to do it without pay. And so every board that I've served doing, I tell them, if this is a board where people are being paid, I don't want it. I will not serve. I will only serve if I'm volunteering my time. That doesn't mean that, that I'm anti-money because yes, I eat and pay mortgage. It just means that I don't need it. And if everything you do is about money, then you're a prostitute. And I don't have any trouble with people who have to prostitute themselves, but I don't have to do that. So why should I do it? I'd like it if you'd share another psalm to give us an idea more of the riches in modern psalms of solace and resistance. March 29. Okay. When I face adversity because of my race, I continue forward remembering many years ago, you and I became a united front in the current struggle. When I came across you painted in white skin, it approaches being laughable, even though I'm supposed to be the joke. What holds my chuckles from bursting forth is knowing my hypertension does not ease. Art for art's sake is as much a myth as food that has been stripped of meaning. Thank you for championing my cause, not only in the war between the states, but also in this current 
civil war. You encourage me to be steady even as my mind whispers, seek revenge. What a pair we are. You as the seed of love and me as a sprout that stops and goes like a vintage Ellington recording, moving from one composition to the next. Help me understand myself as a whole instead of as an individual jam. My placement is no accidental thing. You, the engineer, have a purpose. I am aware that one piece of your vision is that Black is beautiful and matters to the world's hope to become civilized. It is my unique charge that still puzzles. When I find it, help me to sustain it and give the proper glory to you, dear one. That psalm has all the more power for me, considering you released this collection in 2020, and the death of George Floyd was so pivotal for many of us. Could you talk a little bit about your experience of the time of George Floyd, of the changes, Black Lives Matter, and other things that have really come to a fast movement in the past year, year and a half? Because I've been doing police oversight work since 2015, people have sent me all kinds of videos of police killing people. Most of the time, I won't watch it. I don't know how you can be on earth and not have seen George Floyd's death. And obviously, this song was written before then. I looked at everything that was happening during the summer of 2020, and all these people who were out in the street, and I heard from many of my former students and their children, and I know Americans. Americans can sustain next to nothing. Politicians know that. Just wait them out. So the momentum that was begun last summer, it didn't carry over. In the back of people's minds are, oh, been there, done that. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, there is nothing that you can do if you're a person of color to say it's over because it's not. And we still see the same things happening over and over and over again. So many times we hear about when you're growing up in a fundamentalist church, you hear, be baptized and you'll be saved and you'll feel like a new person. And sometimes you see that in movies. Like one of my favorite movies is Tender Mercies with Robert Duvall. And he gets baptized and the little boy with um, his stepson, his little stepson says, do you feel different? And he said, well, no, not really. Well, most people don't really feel different than they did in 2018. If you can't sustain it, it probably will have some glow, but it will not have the power that it should. I don't want to dissipate my power. I want to stay in the moment that can move us forward. And I cannot do that if I'm trying to shame somebody or if I'm trying to say, if not for you, we would not be where we are. But at the same time, I know that that is true. Could you talk a little bit more, Dwight, about your experience on the Police Oversight Commission? And again, you may be in 2015, 2016, Dwight Wilson became a member of, is, is this for Detroit? Well, what happened was a black woman was killed in her kitchen. And the police were called to her house and they knew that she had mental illness because they'd been there many times. They kicked in the kitchen door. She took one step toward them. One shot her with a taser. The other shot her in the head and killed her. She had a four inch knife, which I had measured from the top of my index finger to the curve of my thumb. And Black Lives Matter came and I was a human rights commissioner at the time. And they demanded that we look into it because we had no police oversight commission. It took me four and a half years to get one into Ann Arbor. I was the chair of the subcommittee but there are a whole lot of other people who help me. The use of force, unconscious bias, a celebration of violence, all of these things feed into 
people of color being victimized more than others. But I'm not only about people of color. I'm about all of us. How do we protect ourselves? And I'm about even more in being inclusive with those policemen who are good in trying to do the best job they can for the community. And their names are being soiled. And I believe if we can support them, bring out the best in them, then that will help us, help them protect their reputations and help us protect our lives. Someone close to me put on my Facebook page, I took it off immediately. The police are a gang. I don't want to hear that. It's a lie. It's a total lie. The police are not a gang. And it may seem strange, but I'm the only person I know who's had flats in four different states that highway patrolmen changed in each of those states. Could they have shot me? I guess they could. They were all armed. But they also saw how incompetent I was when I was trying to change those guys. <laughs> That's what you get for going to theological school instead of being an automotive mechanic. <laughs> I do think there is a danger always in power. You know, you know the statement, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So the danger with police carrying a weapon facing other people is that people get involved in their own ego. And some people do and some don't. I mean, there are saints among us, and there are also people who are more easily tempted. And so I do believe that police need extra oversight, not because they're evil, but because they're human. That's the way I'd see it. The local sheriff said that he wanted to have a 30-30. He wanted 30 officers from around the county to come together and have a conversation with 30 civilians. And I was one of the 30 who came forward. So we go to this meeting on a Saturday and everybody wants to be friendly and everything. And all the cops come in wearing guns. Now, we're supposed to be here having an equal conversation. You are armed and we are not. Do you see that there's a power dynamic? They didn't see it. They did not see that there was a problem. Well, what I'd like to do is go on to another of your psalms that you might want to share. One of them that was recommended, you said, was 520 from May 20th. May 20th. Our happiness should not be a pursuit that leads to an innocent person's demise. So we remind ourselves that we are in harm's way. Simple-minded time bombs just by walking streets. This is an amazing turn without a clear view of anything that we have experienced. We're waiting patiently for the clock alarm to turn drowsiness into full awareness. But day after day, lingering appears best. Help us to stand still, peering out windows at free-flying birds, holding our breath when our impatience begs us to scream. Is that laughter we hear just over yonder or inward echoes from our foreparents assuring us that this too shall pass? Now, I remember writing that one. I was looking out the window at a park. The park is catty corner from our house. And I saw this bird fly. And it was right smack dab in the middle of the pandemic, trying to hold on. Because during all of those demonstrations, I never stopped marching. I was in demonstrations from the 60s until the pandemic. So I could never go out there because I never felt safe. And I had pre-existing concerns. So I'm watching all of these people trying to make sense of nonsense. And the only demonstrations I could go to were two that were in cars that we drove around. And it was a painful thing. And we see all these innocent people who are being hurt. We know that just to walk down the street makes some of us suspects. I may have told you this, that one of my sons, there, there could not be more than 
four black people that live within three blocks of where I live right now in Ann Arbor. One of my sons was visiting. He's sitting on the step on the sidewalk during a dinner party that we're having. I hear a knock on the back door. I go to the back door, which is one we used to go in. And there's a policeman with my son. The policeman says to me, is this young man your son? I said, yes, he is. He said, well, sir, I got a telephone call from a woman who said that he was sitting on the curb. It's like 10 o'clock at night. And he was just sitting there. Well, I said, we're Quakers. Sometimes we meditate. He said, well, it's not my fault, sir. And, you know, he was being very respectful. It was, I'm not blaming him. This was a neighbor that did this. My son could have been shot. He's a minister, too. He could have been shot because he had cornrows and he's black and people did not know who he was. They said, well, there are no young black people on the street. So what is he doing here? It was in front of my house. It wasn't in front of her house. I know who did it, who made the call. She tried to hide herself every time I've seen her over the years. But I always speak to her and I always treat her nice. And I never said to her, I know what you did to us. Why should I do that? No future in it. Some people would say the reason you should do that is that maybe she'd learn from it. But my experience of people boxed into corners is that they don't learn. Even if they agree with you, it's only passive aggressive. It'll come out directly sometime. Mm-hmm. I'd like to share one more of your psalms, and then I want to talk a little bit about whispering to babies. And again, you're sharing psalms from the book by Dwight L. Wilson, and your website is DwightLWilson.com. Modern Psalms of Solace and Resistance, and previously you released the book several years ago, Modern Psalms in Search of Peace and Justice. So one more psalm, if you'd be willing to share it, and then let's talk a little bit about whispering to babies. You want to choose it or give me your birthday? I'm born on June 11th. Okay, June 11th. Okay. Repeatedly, you've taught us the lesson that all need not be well to make joyful noises that proceed beyond the farthest star. The ravens quote you, calling gratitude. The crickets' praises fill summer nights. If small creatures can navigate their way to undisguised thankfulness for their lives, we have no excuses for our utter lack of unmitigated appreciation. I draw a distinction between happiness and joy. I'm very unhappy with many things that are happening in our world. But my joy is untouched because my joy is an appreciation for grace, for all of the blessings that I've had that I did not deserve. For me to say that I deserve a better life than my enslaved ancestors or than my grandfather or my father or my mother or somebody that's in Afghanistan, hoping that she or he can get out. It's absurd, but I can still have joy. I can have joy in prison. I had joy when my life was falling apart, but I still have joy. Since that one was one that was connected with my birth date, maybe you had this insight into this part of my belief, my psyche. I'm not a total sentimental schmuck when it comes to movies or shows or anything, but one that makes me cry, and you you probably think I'm a sentimental fool for it, is the cartoon presentation of The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. Because I think the Who's in Whoville or whatever they're called there, when they get around there without any of the outward stuff that creates happiness for most people, they come out and sing their song of joy. That's a perfect example of what I think you're talking about there. And it makes me cry. And the fact that it's not in vindictiveness that they go after the Grinch, but his heart grows three sizes in one day. Why? Because he sees joy that's not dependent on happiness. That's good. Thank you. Thank you for that gift. 
Well, let's talk just a little bit. I know we've gone over time. I know there'll be bonus excerpts. There'll be the full uncut version of this that can't fit in my 55-minute broadcast. So people go to nordenspearradio.org and they can listen to the full uncut version of my visit with Dwight Wilson. Besides modern psalms of solace and resistance, there is your memoir, Whispering to Babies. This is really about dealing with kids, holding kids, comforting kids, comforting yourself while holding children with kids who have severe medical cardiac problems. But it's also a memoir of your life because you touch on how things happen when you were a kid and what you grew up with. So people will understand that at the same time. I'll have a link to this book as well on NordenSpiritRadio.org. My first question is, this is, I think, according to the book, it was Mondays. That's how you start out your week, going to baby holding. What was the schedule of your day? You're theoretically retired, but I have a feeling you may be tired, but I don't think you retired very much. What's your schedule like weekly, monthly? Before the pandemic, I, I retired early after my youngest child I got him out of college. I promised myself I was get them all out of college. I have four sons. I wanted a friend school on the East Coast, but if we moved to the East Coast, we had just got my wife's parents to move from Providence to Michigan so that we could help them in their latter years. They're now both dead. So uh, my wife said, well, why don't you retire? You don't like money anyway. I decided I was going to use the power that I had and not give it away. It was one of my songs talking about. And I was going to try to order my life the way I wanted it to be. So the first thing I would do, this, my major weakness, and I've known this since I was a little boy, is babies. So I want to start the week off holding babies on Monday mornings in the hospital. Once we got that established that I could go in there as a volunteer and hold babies on Monday mornings to start my week off. My wife at the time, my wife is a, um, an attorney at the medical school, and her office was in the same complex as the hospital. We'd have lunch together. So one day early on, I said to her, babe, Every baby I have is really, really sick. And he said, do you only want to hold healthy babies? You know, you've been married for a while. Your wife knows how to play you. And she played. I come from a car playing family. and She just put down an ace and there was nothing I could do with it. So I said to her, I couldn't fix my lips to say all I want to do is hold healthy babies. He said, you're on a pediatric cardiac floor. They're all going to be sick. It hadn't even registered because all my babies have been healthy. Uh, The ones that had made it. So we're going to lose 30 of them a year. And some of them I have been very, very close to. But when the deal goes down, would I rather a baby die in my arms or by her or himself? And most of the babies I get are babies whose parents don't want them or whose parents have other things that are pressing on them, like trying to earn enough money to pay for these horrendous bills or trying to keep the family together when there are four, five or more children. All of these things play into me getting a hold of a baby. So that was the first thing I put in place. Before the pandemic, I was delivering from Meals on Wheels, and I was also a human rights commissioner, and I was also doing police oversight work, and I was also on Pendleton's board, and I was also the clerk of Earlham School of Religion's board. And there probably were a couple other things that, that are skipping my mind, because I've always done an average, even as a professional, when I had five schools around the state, I averaged at least eight hours a week of volunteering. Since then, I probably averaged about 28. I can write any time. And being married to a woman who is workaholic, and she will not admit this, but it's the truth, and everybody knows it. It means that I'm not taking away from family time while she's doing something in the evening or at night or early in the morning. One of my sons, who's a professional writer, he only writes in the morning. Me, and I write any time of the day. Am I alive? Yeah, I can write and I can read. 
So my day is not ordered like it was when I was in a CEO of not-for-profit. It's as the spirit leads me. And if you're a headmaster or if you're a dean or you're a principal or a superintendent, your time is not your own. You got to juggle it and you got to respond to things, react. I can proact more than I ever could in my life. And so you got to write Whispering to Babies. You say right at the beginning of the book, you couldn't for yourself just write, here's a memoir, here's my life, that that would have been too much putting yourself in the spotlight. This book is about all the wonderful children that you've been able to meet and to share with. I just want to say I'm thankful that all those babies gave you the opportunity to slip into their story. We just had our youngest grandbaby here visiting for a week. And I said to my wife this morning, my health improved while she was here. Because of the pandemic, not being able to get in there and help those babies, all of us need touch. And some of them aren't being touched other than to get shots or to get lines put into it. They deserve more than that. And here's where we are as a society. We talk about adult rights all the time. And there are millions of us who talk about fetal rights. But who talks about a baby's right? Does a baby have a right to be touched? Does a baby have a right to be loved, to be soothed, to be helped during a period of time when you're fighting for your life? Does that baby have any rights? We don't even want to touch it. We do not, as a society, want to touch it. And it's a disgrace because the parents can come in there. One or two parents can come in if they choose to come in. And the hospital has managed it so that there have been times during the pandemic where only one parent could come in. The second could not. And just as you know, in nursing homes, nobody could come in to a nursing home. But the volunteers can't come in. What about those babies whose parents don't want them? They don't deserve to be soothed. They don't deserve to be held. This affected my health if I'm willing to be honest, but it's affected there's a heck of a lot more. And I'm more worried about them because I'm 73. I didn't expect to be 73. I have only two or three friends that are still alive. They're just coming into the world and they're by themselves fighting a battle. And they are our heroes. They are our heroes. And we're looking at football players and basketball players, and et cetera, et cetera, as being our, please, please. I don't even want to hear it. They fight and they do for their lives and they don't mind. And they give back nothing but love. And they don't show any racism and they don't show any sexism. All they show is love. And we got the nerve to say that they're infants while we are acting infantile. Excuse me for being passionate, but there it is. I think the people at the hospitals, this cardiac department where you go in and whisper to babies, they know you. They know the blessing you bring to these babies, the connection that forms with you and these children. The parents, it's a constantly revolving number of parents. And I think you've got probably two strikes against you as far as certain segments of the population see it. And I don't agree, of course. One is that you're a man and men are suspect around children too often. I happen to be generally thought of favorably because both my belly's big enough and my beard's white enough to be Santa Claus. So men have this prejudice against them. And plus, you're black. For some parents, whether they have avowed racism or not, there's going to be at least a discomfort there. Could you talk at all about your experience so you share some of them in Whispering to Babies? If you're going in that hospital to hold these babies, it's only one way to go in. And that is with all the positive energy that you can summon. Because you don't want to bring any negativity into that space. You know that they don't deserve negativity. So when I go in, I bring all my positive energy 
And because I had four straight sons, four consecutive sons, and I wanted a daughter each time, naturally, I would want to hold a little girl baby. But I said to myself, no, don't show that prejudice. Instead, you take the first baby that is available. And so that's what I do. I'm sitting there. I started in January of 2011. I can't think of another man who has been on the floor at the same time I have. It's only been two male nurses that I have seen, and neither one of them have been there for years. When the parents come in, they're not expecting to see me. They're expecting their baby to be there by her or himself, maybe a nurse to be there, maybe a doctor. A teaching school is associated with it, maybe some medical students. They come in, they see this black man with their baby. Only one time has anybody frowned. And when she did, her husband brought his, and she's a white woman, brought his positive energy and thanked me immediately for holding that baby. And it changed her. How could that possibly be in a country that is as racially divided as we are? You bring your best energy wherever you go. And I guarantee you it's going to dissipate a great deal of the negative energy. I didn't read that in a book. I have experienced it. You say men are suspects. Men should be suspects. I don't have any trouble with that in the context where I know that I'm doing what I'm doing to help somebody else. I can't give you a logical explanation. I can just say that they can feel the love. And there have been so many times when a woman has come in and I said, you know, I'll, I'll say, you know, the first team is here and it's time for the bench to, to leave. And they'll say, no, you're having so much fun. You keep her. Or you keep him. And they just sit down and talk to me. It's like, man, what is going on here? If we, if we are willing to be the best self that we can be. Excuse me. The world wouldn't look like it does. If we're willing to do it. I had the joyous experience. My first wife and I separated when my son was only two. And she moved 250 miles away. But before he started first grade, he moved up here to be with me and my new wife. So first through eighth grade, I went into his school each week. I went in to assist the class and teachers quickly learned to turn the class over to me. I'd tell stories or interact with the kids in various ways. I taught him French starting in third grade. <laughs> But in first grade, I would read stories to them, and then I'd go down and have lunch with my son and with his friends, his first grade school friends. And there was one sweet little girl. I was walking down to the lunchroom with them, and she's next to me, and she reaches out and takes my hand. She says, you're my favorite man. And I'm just so aware of how many kids need a loving man who's not a threat in any way. But they need that, and I know that I changed so many hearts because I was there each week. So I thank you for doing that work. And it comes at a cost to you, too, because, as you said, they die. These are children who are in hospital sometimes for months or even years with their heart issues, and parents can't be there. So you're filling in for parents who have to work two jobs and have five other kids they've got to take care of or who live three states away all of those things that you're filling in, you're, you're supplementing some of that love. But Mark, I'm glad you said what you just said, because everything you said is true. It comes at a cost, but nothing is free. So you can do the right thing and it may cost you. 
but you can refuse to do the right thing and know you refuse to do it and it costs more. It's all about identity. You know, so I'm not saying that what I'm doing is selfless because that would be a total lie. I'm going to tell God, okay, this is selfless. I'm getting something out of it. To go into a space where you're going to be totally loved, that's what these babies give. And they'll play with your face. And then they'll say, wow, but you don't look like, you're not as handsome as Denzel Washington. And your voice doesn't sound as, as cool as James Earl Jones. They'll say it is. The whole feel is you are giving me love when I need to have love. You are a safe space when I need to feel safe. Because they come into the world, many of them have already been operated on before they were born. Most of them have been operated on multiple times after they were born. Some of them are waiting for heart transplants and you cannot have but two in your lifetime. So yeah, I'm getting a whole lot out of it. The energy that they give you and the person that they make you you can't help but improve as a person, but it's just not enough of us that are willing to do this. We can find all kinds of time to watch TV or YouTube or text or whatever, but three or four hours a week with a baby, I can't find that time. It's crazy. Come on. Well, one thing you're not, Dwight, is crazy. I think you're so centered on spirit and a sense of the whole of humanity and beyond as your brothers and sisters. It seems to me that you're walking exactly the Quaker maxim, let your life speak. Your life speaks clearly, distinctly, and the message is always love. And I see that reflected through modern psalms of solace and resistance, through whispering to babies, through your series about Essie was my mother, the other books you've written. I've got links to DwightLWilson.com on NorthernSpiritRadio.org. You can hear my previous interview with him a couple of years ago. Please come to NorthernSpiritRadio.org, listen to that, connect up with him, and support the kind of work he's doing. It's not just his work, it's our work. And so let's all join our hands together in doing that. And Dwight, thank you for writing about this. I'm glad you included enough of yourself in this book. I feel I know you much better as my brother. I have all the more loves for the children because of you. So thank you so much for writing all of these books. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate you. And again, the links are on NorthernSpiritRadio.org. Come and delight yourself with the Psalms that Dwight has written and join us next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, 